0: This is the Experiencer Group. Exclusive content. On this episode, a roundtable discussion with Mike Cleland. Mike is an illustrator, UFO researcher, and experiencer. He's written extensively on alien abductions, synchronicities, and owls. In fact, if you Google UFOs and owls, Mike Cleland is the first thing that comes up. He joins us for a deep dive into these realms and much more.
1: I think there was a quote from your bio that said something like you didn't go to art school but you learned from mad magazine
0: true
2: i, did. I went to nyu <laughs> film school which is technically art you school did? So I did my NYU. husband.
1: Yeah. oh really yes
2: i was i went there in 81 to or 81 to 82 so i, I dropped out pretty quick you guys yeah. may have crossed paths i mean i was kind of dropped out in the pretty early on i was doing illustration work i i took a year off after my senior year of high school Mm-hmm. And I worked at an ad agency. So I was doing illustration work and doing pre-production work and doing storyboards. And then I went to NYU film school and I was like, it was expensive. And I was in the village yeah. and I was like, so I left the school and started working in film crews
1: uh-huh. doing
2: illustration. I mean, I could just base it. It's a little, it was a little more complicated than this, but my illustration skill just allowed me to a uh, weigh in quick. To, For to storyboarding cruise. mostly? Mostly storyboarding. Yeah, I did right. a lot of them. Trillions of them, yeah. Um, a lot of it was TV commercials and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, NYU. Yeah, so like to be 19 years old and to like land in, I, the, you know, it, in the Greenwich Village, coming yeah. from the suburbs of Detroit. Oh my God, it blew my mind. You have no idea. Like to be able uh. to like walk out the door and just have Greenwich Village and Soho within footsteps of the door of the dormitory. So I lived at the, the Brittany dormitory, which is at the corner of uh, 10th I think, and.
1: I think Kurt lived at Brittany as well.
2: Oh my God, and I so I had the corner room that overlooked Grace Church. It's like 10th and
3: 5th or
1: 10th and 10th and Broadway. Or something?
2: 10th, and 10th and Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. He did have that dorm. You guys have to talk because he talks about the church and yeah. Oh, I I, uh, I
3: looked, it's
2: just like, I, I was like to be it blew my mind in ways like to be, I grew up in this crummy little suburb and outside of Detroit and Detroit as a city is like, like, like dismal compared to New York. Yeah. I was just like, it was alive. It was vibrant. It was people out. It was like fun. It was,
3: Yeah. For listeners out there, the 81 to 91, I mean, people my age or older will know this, but like, you know, for younger people, this is the age of Basquiat. This is like the latter days of Andy Warhol. This is like the East Village scene. It was this kind of like grand expansion for art and sexuality and all sorts of wild things. In in good ways and in ways that uh, ended up being like very, very difficult for a lot of people as well, like with the AIDS crisis yeah. and things like this. This is one of the most pivotal times in New York culture, really.
2: So um, I was living in Soho for part of that and it, just to like be able to walk out the door and be able to like walk through. Like I used to go to a different gallery. I had to take the subway to work. So I'd say like, I was going to go to a different gallery every day on the way home from work. A different gallery every day was like easy.
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: and I would usually go to several, but, um, and I had a Keith Herring thing that I pulled off the black paper with the chalk thing and I pulled it. I don't have it anymore. It was like totally like there's so oh. like, many drugs and booze that have like oh gone under God. the bridge since then. So, <laughs> But, um, but uh, so I had um, that, you know, one of those chalk drawings that he did on the subway thing. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah,
3: that is insane. That's amazing. Uh, wow. And Where is that now? A, I went to a party it, at yeah. John
2: Basquiat's house. We were like, it was just totally like, like here I was like, there's a party going on over there. Like there's some big party. What's going on? People are like, and there was a, there was a bar called um, which you probably know called um, it's gone now with the great Jones cafe on Jones street and, and our great Jones street. And there was a party right across the street and we're like, let's go, let's sneak in. I was at this guy, like, come on, let's sneak in. We just walked in and we were like, whatever skinny and dressed in black and we just uh-huh. walked right in and so and i remember it was you know, andy warhol was there and boy george was there and i was but it was basquiat's house and i knew who he was and i like i went here this like studio was part next to his bedroom kind of thing and he had like, these and i sat in his bed and went through his sketchbooks
1: wow and it was really
2: so like like there was things that he drew that like were like oh it's gonna like like that raw kind of yeah. kind of thing that he had like like there was page after page of like images that he was trying to get more raw. You could see like, as the page would turn, he would like, he was redoing it and redoing it. So that raw look did not happen by accident. He put a lot of work into that. So that was really fun to, to, to like have that. It, would, it was like that party in um, midnight cowboy. They go to the party and there's the psychedelic lights yes. and all the, all oh, the beautiful people is,
3: and all the, you know, the, yeah. So
1: that is my it's, favorite scene from that movie. Yeah.
3: It's wild to think about because it's like you know Mike, if you were like a deeply unethical person, which you are clearly not, you could have just grabbed that notebook you would, I drank the liquor just- from
2: the but my friend did take a bottle <laughs> of, from the from the bar. <laughs> he actually like walked out and he pulled out the bottle of whiskey from like the from the from the bar, you know that was so yeah, so my friend wasn't as deeply ethical as I was, but I certainly drank while I was there, and like there was like a s- chefs that were making like Thai stir fries and stuff like that that were it was a pretty wild scene
3: yeah you seem like somebody that might be uniquely suited to the pandemic year but maybe that's not true at all how how was your pandemic year
2: so a lot of happened in my pandemic year i don't want to get too much into it but i was in a long-term relationship and i broke up and that was right in the spring summer of last year so i did a bunch of moving which was incredibly difficult during the pandemic so in Puget Sound right now in a lovely house and off in the woods it's really nice so and um, as far as like being off the grid I I was fully lived in Manhattan for a decade so I was like in the village completely immersed in the urban world for those years and I was working for advertising agencies and stuff like that my my move out west completely was coincided with uh, the fax machine Uh, I would not have been able to do my illustration work without the fax machine. People could approve drawings through the fax machine. And then I would have to put them in a physical envelope. If This tells you how long ago this would have been the late 80s. I had to put them in a or the early 90s. I had to put it in a physical envelope and mail them to clients in New York. Um, So uh, and then as far as all the outdoor stuff, I worked for uh, 17 years for an outdoor school. I don't want to use the name. I've been cautious not to use the name, but um, it begins with an N and they do 30 day courses. I'll leave it at that. And if you Google me, it comes right up. So I'll, (laughs) but I just cautious not to use their name because it's like, like, I don't want to like, I don't want them to be worried that I, you know, my association, I haven't worked for them in 10 years, so I'm not too worried. But um, I did very, very ambitious outdoor trips with Uh, students. I was not a guide. I was an instructor. We went out with students. We went out for 30 days into the mountains of Alaska, into uh, British Columbia, in the desert southwest in Utah, um, all over the Rockies in the North Cascades. That's where I was working in the North Cascades, right where I am here now. Um, And um, so I, and this was not like, you know, like I would like this was heavy-duty camping with mountaineering gear and and we ate well we slept well we ate hot food we drank coffee every morning so we had a lot of gear and that was the big packs are what turned me on to the to the ultralight stuff um so the ultralight stuff is a form of camping that where you just take a minimal amount of gear for safety and I, i started doing that in Probably about 2005, so that's been 16 years now. So that has that have really changed the direction of my life, doing that really lightweight stuff, and um, you know how it. You know, I feel like the so it's less so the lightweight stuff and more the um, in a way the work with the school. We actually graded students, and we had a category we would grade them, and it's the ability to perform. In uncertain conditions that was a grade that was a physical grade and we so i mean so that was something i taught and that was something i had to role model and that is something i've gotten pretty good at so in a way um you know i've been immersed the whole world has been immersed in uncertain conditions for the last year and a half and um and i feel like i was a little bit maybe more predisposed to be able to roll with it in a way that I would not have been if I did not have the, the outdoor experience that I had working at the school.
3: I mean, along those lines, you know, one thing that experiencers often mention is that um, new encounters seem to often be triggered by either moving someplace, moving into a new place, encountering a new environment. Have you ever experienced that in the past? Have you heard any stories that way? Does that seem more like a function of anomalous phenomena living in an area to you or is does that and or does that seem like a function of the phenomena or et etc using benchmarks in our lives more than time as a function you know uh, has that been something that you've considered
2: i've considered it you know it's interesting because there's lots of things that would fall into that i mean people who have depressive episodes are often triggered by a mood or or move so um you know women go through post Partum depression after the birth of a child. So there's like powerful human events that trigger emotional responses. So I, you know, as I go on, I'm less locked into the, um, like I'm I'm letting a lot of things blur together, whether it be like UFO contact is just a one of many forms of highly charged Human events, human experiences, and so I'm blending a lot of that in with um, with the research and my own personal view of the research. And I say as much as you know when I when I frame these things, I'll say I am framing this from my very subjective point of view. But this is how I see it for now, and sometimes I change my mind. But yeah, so there's lots of things, UFO contact and things like that certainly can have a powerful, traumatic, or spiritual or life changing event or a life-changing trigger in people's lives and um, so can other things but but um, so i kind of lump all those things together
1: i have to say that i have sent uh, especially your work around the messengers um, your podcasts and recordings to friends who haven't really crossed the line into the 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 obsessive world of the paranormal quite yet especially friends and family who aren't quite ready to believe in ufology or the existence of UFOs. And it seems to be one of those really great transitional um, books and transitional uh, writings. So I just want to thank you for that because I can't count how many times I referred people to your books.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's interesting. The third book, which is called hidden experience is selling really poorly. Uh And, and I don't care, you know, and what the people who are responding to it, are the people who've had the direct experience and they're getting back to me and saying, wow, this book was really powerful. So I, I sense strongly that that one was written and, you know, put out there exactly for that exact purpose to, to, um, help folks in that tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that book is all about, you know, my own sort of tipping point, but yeah, thank you. And then, um, yeah. And I, and I, I fully recognize that I'm like outside the, I mean the UFO, the literature within the UFO world, you know, the if you put a you know the the shelf on the bookshelf with all the UFO books, I fully realize that my book is kind of like outside the the boundaries of of the core of that. I mean, other people have done remarkable work that are on the fringe edges of that. And I feel like mine is and I didn't set out to write a book that was off the edge of that. Mm you know, it just sort of, it morphed into that during the writing process. Mm
1: -hmm. So I wonder if you have any thoughts around perhaps owls are these (laughs) nodes or these echoes of gray aliens.
2: Basically, there's a thousand pages where I am trying to wrestle and come to terms with exactly that question. Why owls? What's up with the owls? Like why owls? And the I did not come to any kind of concrete conclusion. I, I, I had to be wishy-washy and dance around it, and there's lots of things I can speculate on, but I do not know. So there's two things. There's the, there's the screen memory aspect, which you can sum up in, like, people drive out down a lonely road at night, and they see a giant owl in the road, and it seems very strange, and then they arrive home two hours late, and they don't understand why um later than they should have there's missing time so that aspect the owls show up a lot but it's not just owls it's also deer and raccoons and squirrels and firemen and dead relatives and jesus and all kinds of things show up um uh clowns i think so so any one of those things so why are they picking so the two top and i've talked to a bunch of researchers and they all sort of say the same thing there's these there's Owls and deer. Those are the two top screen memories that people report. And then underneath that, sprinkled somewhat evenly, are all the other stuff, squirrels and raccoons and cats and things like that. So um, but the two are owl and deer. Now both of those are highly charged mythic animals, right? You have Athena and Diana. You know, you have they have both that one has a companion owl, one has a companion deer, or a fawn. And so like i'm like like the 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 i've talked about hopkins i remember just you know like why like and he would just say so plainly so clearly like they do that because the 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 alien beings sort of look like you know owls they have big eyes and they sort of look like like they really don't look that much like owls and like like just because you say it so so you know so believably doesn't make it true so like i had to like i was like okay now what so I don't have an answer, but my I would argue that 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 they are appearing as an archetype, as a totem, as so like all throughout human history, we have uh, lore associated with the owl and lore associated with the deer. Um, someone could write the same book I wrote on about deer. Uh I don't want to do it. Someone else <laughs> I haven't had any deer experiences. So someone else can do that book. But um, but so that so so in the writing of the book, I got I wanted to get rid of the I just wanted to cover the screen memory and then move past it because that's not that interesting to me. The much, much more interesting aspect is real owls showing up at the time of UFO contact. In the way I frame it, in the way I have to like take, like I use this term all the time, I say, let's take two steps back. Let's just look at this, like, like, you know, you get so myopic and you get like You know your face is pushed against the newspaper so you're just you're looking at the little dots of the photograph in the you know in the newspaper you know but you have to push the newspaper away and realize like oh those little dots actually make up a a picture so i'm trying to doing my best which is hard because i get sucked into these stories i want to do my best to take two steps back or ten steps back and try to make sense of this the so if the owl is a uh, an archetype or a totem so i i so like whatever, Joe, the insurance salesman in Ohio is driving on his car at night, and he sees an owl and has this associated mystical experience, perhaps of being on board a craft, it may be traumatic, it may be frightening, but he has this, this other dimensional, otherworldly worldly experience. Um, and throughout all the world's mythologies, the owl is, the owl can see into the darkness, and it becomes a and everyone would have recognized that ancient man would have recognized that modern man is recognizes that, but the the overwhelming lore of the owl is um, the mediator between this dimension and that other dimension. So if there's all kinds of, you can, it can be, you know, associated with death, associated with myth, uh, meditation. It can be associated with shamanic initiation. All of those are penetrating the veil somehow. So that the owl is a totem animal for, passing beyond the veil and then coming back. That's very important in the the literature and the mythologies. Now, so Joe, the insurance man in Ohio has an experience with an owl. He talks to the UFO researcher for advice. But if we turn the clock back 500 years and someone on the plains of South Dakota has a visionary experience with a real owl walking along the path, they would they, they don't have UFO investigator to, to contact. They may, they may see a, an apparition in the sky or something. But I'm just, I'm, I'm not so locked into the to the UFO thing. So they have an outlet. They can go to the teepee at the edge of the village, talk to the local shaman, and the shaman would frame it in an entirely different way than the UFO investigator would. The shaman would ask, How are your dreams? Where are you in your life? What was happening leading up to the owl sighting? What was happening after the owl sighting depending on the tradition the shaman would be imbued with a deeper knowledge of of the lore of the owl reflecting the community reflecting reflecting the tribe reflecting the shamanic traditions and i have sort of been thrust into this middle ground now because people are reaching out to me like people say like well how do you know this stuff is true like how do you like how what's your proof that this owl stuff is true and i'm like look at my email inbox. That's how you know it's true. Uh, I'm getting one powerful story a day. And and I I have become, for better or for worse, I feel like I'm poorly suited for it. In some ways, I've become the shaman at the edge of the village where people come to me and say, I had this experience. I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't have an answer to how to make sense of it, but I can ask those questions and turn it around and say, what was going on in your life leading up to the sighting? What was going on in your life after? What are your dreams like? Have you had increased psychic abilities? Now, here's something that's very, very, very strange, and I am at a loss for this. So when I talk to people, I, I when I talk to someone on the phone when I make some notes. and When I do email correspondence with folks, I have a written record. But the one thing that I ask is, I ask it in this way. I say, do you have any healing abilities? And I, I kind of know the answer ahead of time. So it's certainly not a hundred percent, but it is statistically, I, I, so I can't even begin to guess. I would say most people who contact me with an owl and UFO story are Reiki healers. Like I just write it down on the piece of paper when I'm like getting ready to talk to them. I just like, okay, I'm going to call this person up. I have a set Handful of questions. I write Reiki on the thing and I just wait for them to say, Oh, I'm a Reiki master. I just got my Reiki master license and I just check that off. Like, that's to me is weird. And I, so that is what this is the kind of stuff, these are the threads I'm pulling on. And like, I'm just one person. I'm sort of letting my heart dictate where I go or my, like, like, this is this, like, I'm really not that interested in radar analysis and, you know, Calling the, the police and seeing if anyone saw you. I've done that kind of stuff. I've called airports and called radar. You know, called the cops in the county and stuff like that. Do you have any UFO sightings reported that night? And I'd never get any good answers, so I just stopped doing it. Well, I'm much much more interested in the more mystical aspects. What's going on in your What's going on in your spiritual life?
1: I kind of have a follow-up to this because um, one of the things I realized in listening to, like refreshing myself with your writing and with the messengers lately, is that of course I had to ask myself, what are my experiences with owls? And I realized that I had moved to a part of Seattle that was very wooded, um, about 10, well, it was 2010, that was uh, near Lake Washington, it's called Leschi. And during the time that I lived there, not only did my uh, obsession with UFOs suddenly re-up, like incredibly, to the point where I was studying obsessively all the time. Also, I came down with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, which is, as many of you know, as many people know, that that's actually common in abductees as written by Kathleen Martin and other people. So... Those two things happened in the course of the 10 years that I lived there. The thing that was amazing that it dawned on me is that we were surrounded by barred owls all the time. They they would sort of hoot at night and I would go to sleep hearing them. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and hear them again. And they have a very distinctive call and we would see them as the sun went down. It was the only place in my life where i ever lived that was surrounded that we regularly saw and heard from barred owls and so this was a really interesting thing for me to realize and i only just realized it within the last 24 hours so yes i i think you're definitely onto something here and incidentally i'm also trained in reiki
2: <laughs> i'm not surprised i'm not surprised <laughs> yes. so so you know there's a couple things yes there's, so there's places on the, like i'm living in the seattle area and i Saw an owl the other night and heard one on the on in a tree right nearby. And so I took note of it and I was trying to like sort of like what's going on in my life? What's in it? Like a lot's going on in my life. Uh, big moves have taken place. And um, so here, let me say one thing. So I and I've gotten very good at telling this story, but I there's I went through a hypnosis session with Yvonne Smith, and there's a lot to that, and we can talk about that later if you want. But at one point, at the end of the session, um she asked a question, and before we even started, like we're in the office, and I'm like, "Look, while I'm under, while I'm under, while I'm in that vulnerable, uh, uh, unconscious world, you know, subconscious world, you know, I want you to ask me, what's up with all the owls?" And she goes, "Okay." She makes down a little thing, and she's, and then we're talking, and this like whole giant story unfolds, and and then at the end, it's kind of winding down, and she goes, "And Mike." What is your connection with owls and then you know hypnosis is like if you try to listen to a hypnosis session people like talk in little short sentences and long long pauses and mumble and so i'm kind of mumbling i and i say this like which i I'm like well I, I, I said i'm an i'm an artist and and and, and I, I i i know how people treat with symbols and i was mumbling and stammering and kind of trying to get stuff out and then all of a sudden i i spoke very clearly and I listened to this and it was like, like, it didn't sound like anything I would say. So she asked me, Mike, what is your connection to owls? I mumble for a little while, I long pause, and then I say very clearly, the owls aren't important. The owls are a symbol on a door. The door is the, the owl is the correct symbol for the door, but the owls aren't important we are on this side of the door and on the other side of the door is an infinite vastness so my question to myself is which i don't have an answer did i channel that did that come from an outside source did that come from some inside source within me like that was like it sounds poetic when i say it and i've said this many times so i i, I didn't give it the exact quote but i was pretty close. Um, But when listening to the actual audio recording of the hypnosis session, like all of a sudden, like I'm on this mumbling, you know, long pauses, like not speaking clearly, but getting, saying things. Suddenly I sound like a voice actor giving an oration. So, so I, that was, so that literally like, like I had spent, whatever, at that point, 10 years of my life, like studying, focusing, obsessed with owls, 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 everything was owls. And then she asked, what's up with the owls? And I said, the owls aren't important. So that was a big, it untethered me in a way from being locked into just owls.
3: In The Messengers, you have this wonderful account of this cat in an old folks home that is kind of like seemingly able to detect within hours of, some, of when a person's uh, going to pass and to to the point where the people in the facility the workers in the facility would trust that this cat had this awareness of like when that person was going to go and you relate that uh in in some ways to kind of like how um something that eric davis would uh likes to call uh perturbations in the reality field uh you know in the book you talk about how uh, birds are able to detect magnetic north, you know, foxes are as well in terms of hunting prey. So, you know, it, in terms of like when you say that owls aren't the important point, point maybe they're just walking towards that, that bend, that rift, so that they can wait for time to stop, so they can just kind of swoop in and grab every piece of prey that's frozen there mm-hmm. in the forest floor or whatever, right? I, am not locked into that interpretation. The one you gave
2: about, you know, like the, like the Oscar, the cat in the, in the hospice thing, where the, what is a cat seeing when someone's dying? Is the cat seeing like the parting of the veils, you know, is the cat pr- able to perceive that I'm seeing this stuff more now where there's a grand chess player sort of above our whole realm. You know, he can look into our reality and we can't quite look out and perceive him. We might get a little flicker sometimes that there's something going on. But my sense is that the, grand chess player is like doing two moves at once it's moving the ufo into place and it's moving the owl into place and why that's happening i can only speculate and i keep on going back to that the owl is there as a punctuation mark the way we would put an excla- exclamation point at the end of a sentence for emphasis and and so the the grand chess player of reality is putting this these owls in as a symbolic marker something that that we can tap into though we may not tap into it consciously at the at the time and place of a UFO contact event or at the time and place of a highly synchronous or highly charged human event oftentimes death has owls and which is also a death is a transform a death is moving beyond that veil also the same same as the the mythology of the owl.
3: If there's a grand chess player interested in the nebulous netherworlds uh, uh, between here and there, it might be my wonderful compatriot, Stuart Davis. I know he had something that he wanted to bring up. (laughs) Uh,
0: I assure you, I am not the grand chess player. I'm not even a Reiki master, nor am I close. (laughs) But I do have a great interest in your work and all you've done, and I'm so excited to have you here today, Mike, and one of the reasons I feel appreciative of you, and I'm in a celebratory mood that you're our are, are groundbreaking first with this roundtable format for our podcast. So we're in this uproar, this avalanche of a nuts and bolts Heyday, let's say. (laughs) Like nuts and bolts is having a kind of heyday right now, right? UAPs, UFOs uh, with all these inexplicable attributes just everywhere in the mainstream media. But what I keep thinking about is, (laughs) could anything be less nuts and bolts than owls? And owls and their role in contact seem, (laughs) from my perspective sometimes, almost the antithesis of the objective, measurable phenomena that is holding sway over a lot of the researcher community right now. But something intelligent as you're relating in these responses and your work, of course, is something intelligent appears to be using them to signal to create theater, to intervene in experiences lives, but to do so in this perfectly oblique fashion. So what I'm wondering about is could you ever imagine a equivalent event or social migration would which would be the owl equivalent of disclosure I almost am asking this because this question itself is funny because of the intrinsically liminal perfection in the station the owls occupy in this mystery that you're relating and I guess I'm pointing more toward the difference between the individual eureka, the individual ontological shock and transformation, which occurs with such regularity for experiencers of contact or UFOs and owls figuring so prominently in that. So individually, we have such an easy, or not easy, but we have a greater frequency of transformation and profound spiritual, emotional cosmological shift, right? So any individual can be transformed by their contact experiences. Collectively, it's so hard to punch through the white noise, right? It's so hard to punch through the membrane with these great mysteries. But that seems to be happening to a degree right now. There's a big chunk of the population going, holy shit, there are things behaving in ways we can't explain. And they've been doing it for a long time, something is a miss here it's really strange what i'm asking is could there ever be some kind of equivalent collective recognition around these mysteries such as the owls such as the more the high strangeness the liminal mystical totemic forces that are the great interior the great within of the part of this mystery or is that forever out of reach by its very nature
2: so i i have no idea that but i could say that if it has happened so it's happened to me and it's happened to people who are reading the book and people are the book's popular it's selling well the blue book the first book um so people are interested in this aspect of it <clears throat> and so my answer would be yes it certainly could happen i think it would happen slow you know like so like i've had my disclosure event like i'm like I don't need someone else to tell me that this stuff is real. So I'm like, I'm not following the news. I didn't, I watched the 60 minutes thing. It was so deadly dull. Like I learned nothing <laughs> in that. <laughs> so, but again, you know, my the question I wanted to ask, is, I wanted like, this is funny if I was like, and I've talked to people, I talked to um, James Fox, the guy who, and I think I had to edit it out cause it kind of fell flat. When I interviewed him for a, a podcast said like, D- like, what do you think would happen if we like asked, that guy, uh, Dave Fravor, you know, the, the jet pilot, you know, did he have like an increase in synchronicities or psychic abilities after his thing? And he could just kind of tear James Fox kind of going like, uh, like what? <laughs> so, and, uh, but that's the question I want to know. Like, what about these people on the, you know, that I'm certain, like if, like if they're seeing like a true anomalous, you know, mysterious craft and it's not just some sort of mind control or some sort of projection by like, some other forces within the government or something like that so but if they're seeing a real thing i am certain a, a goodly percentage of those people would start having uh, psychic events spiritual events mystical events in their lives Synchronist, even if something is an uptick in synchronicity is is so commonly reported um an increase in psychic abilities is so commonly reported after these comment uh, these things even in the deadly dull uh, reports that MUFON hands out, like the sheet that MUFON has. Like on that sheet, it's it asks, you know, like, which direction did it come in? Can you draw a picture of it? You know, um, did you have any other witnesses? There's a couple things they said. Was there any odd animal? Did animals act oddly, like dogs barking or cats hiding or something? And the other thing is like, I can't remember how it's phrased, but I think it's something to the effect of, has your psychic or spiritual life, life had changes? So they're well aware of that, even in a even in a in a very conservative organization like MUFON. They are well aware that psychic and spiritual changes take place in the lives of these witnesses. So, if if all these Air Force and Navy pilots and stuff like that come forward and start talking about this this thing, like someone's going to ask them, like, what else is going on, and they're going to say, well, like, I've got psychic abilities because of my my sighting contact or I'm doing Reiki or I'm, you know, like my life changed in this odd spiritual way. So if it, if people ask the right questions, they're going to, it's going to happen. Yeah. So it's going to be folded into that nuts and bolts thing. And I think the nuts and bolts thing is real. There's a reason to go out and measure the burn mark in the yard. Um, I've done it a couple of times. I've actually, I have a story where I actually, there was a circle. I was helping someone put the little tags you had these little flags and we're putting it in a circle you could see the circle really clearly if you kind of step back and you put the little flag in and we were going to make this circle this big circle in the backyard and and i couldn't even get around the circle with the flags i kind of walked away and said what's been going on in your dreams to the witness (laughs) you know who saw the thing land in their backyard and i was like i couldn't even like i didn't have the patience to put all the flags in in the circle i just walked away from it and started asking you know like that those the the kind of questions that i've been asking so yeah I, i don't know if i answered your question, but. I think both things can happen. I think we can have a nuts and bolts change of consciousness as well as a spiritual change of consciousness, depending on how we collectively address the bigger issue.
0: I would agree. And just as a really brief follow-up tag to that, it's the part that's really inextricable is that there is no object without the subject so we're not going to have the luxury of just only ever dealing with craft and objects because that's in many ways a comfortable and convenient to go out and measure a burn mark is a lot more it's something we can metabolize easier than there are non-human entities and they operate with a access to realms and dimensions and states that we can't even begin to imagine at this point. But the impossible always feels like the inevitable as well, because sooner or later, you look long enough at craft, you look long enough at burn marks, you are going to end up talking about owls and entities and like they just figure so prompt and God and death and right. So, and you've covered this so elegantly and beautifully, I guess I was more trying to get your read on what that cultural moment might be like, what the collective ontological shock might be like around oh my god, these entities operating in synchrony with these animals and earthbound creatures. It's you know it's been depicted in many forms of art and many movies. Uh, I just wonder if you can paint your picture of what you think that might look like for us collectively and how far down the road that might be if that makes more sense than the original framing.
2: Well, that's tough cuz I mean I think we live in a very materialistic world where people are shy, just it's just not polite dinner conversation in a way to talk about spiritual stuff, you know? It's much better to talk about, you know, baseball. I've spent some time in Sedona and the whole culture there is all geared around this like coming new age. So there's a there's a pop culture image of that you know i don't know what that means we're all going to like start hugging each other and wearing flowy dresses or something like that and 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 you know there's a there's a kind of a simplistic pop culture thing which i don't think it's going to play out like starry eyed people in sedona like might see it as happening um but i think that there will be like i i can't predict the future but i feel like there's a big potential for people to treat these mystical realms much differently than they had even just a few years ago and i think the internet has had a huge impact on that i mean that's been a real driving force just the just the kind of books and podcasts that are available now that would not have been available a decade ago or 20 years ago i mean you can see this uptick in like in how you know, even the term quantum, which I n- try never to use, you know, s- implies I don't really understand what it truly means, what quantum really means, but it certainly implies something some mystical, uh, 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 hardcore physicists might not use the term mystical, but it implies something mystical behind the behind the big veil.
3: You know, one thing along those lines, Mike, is that, uh, you know, we... As experiencers, we often feel ourselves kind of decentered within the conversation, especially considering like how central we are to the accounts. You know, most people, they depend on the experiencers to hear about what the heck is going on. And at the same time, we get drowned out. You know, there's, historically, there's, there's the association with the insane or the mentally unstable. You know, all all these all these associations that push us into the realm of the destab- like the destabilized, the decentralized, where you have to listen to the authorities, you know, the the Bud Hopkins, the, the the John Max, that act as kind of like this, this center point, this kind of like figure with that is kind of like a conduit for the experiencer or experience or the, the or the experiencer outlet and so along with what you're saying like you know as experiencers we often have to look towards things like quantum physics or we have to look towards these things like this kind of nuts and bolts revolution within the realm of mainstream media there's parts of that 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 make me think about like uh what you were just talking about within you know the internet now with podcasts now and how people can invest themselves now and the questions that they can answer to themselves now versus when you started your exploration into this, when you started kind of going through the journey of being like, "No, I I am an experiencer, and I'm going to like work on figuring this shit out as a seeker," mm-hmm. right? And it it I, I see in your books, you know, you have this there's this wonderful journey that you go through in terms of going through talking to Jacques Villet, talking to Bud, talking to all you know, talking to Yvonne, talking to Barbara Lamb, going to these early experiencer support groups, you know, that that back then like largely had to exist in person. And I and like in reading that stuff, like I'm actually as somebody that with Kirsten and Stuart, you know, we co-host experiencer support groups now on the Experiencer Group site. And it, I get, I almost, I get this vicarious jealousness, like looking at your accounts, because I'm thinking like, oh my God, this guy got to go to this support group and this support group. How has that journey been for you? Like from where it started to where it's now, like, do do you feel where there, was there a one support group where you were like, like in the early days where you were like, that was the, that was the damn one. That was the dang one. Like, or, you know, I'm sure it was dependent on the people and Kind of like, how is that segue from the IRL version that you had to kind of like take a plane flight to maybe in the early days to where we are right now?
2: Some of the support group type things I was going to were at um, the International UFO Congress, which I would go to every year for a few years. And that they had, once a night, they had an evening support group. So for an hour, a night, for a week, well, five days, you would go to these little support group meetings. And I found them really Like, I don't remember anything that was actually said so much. I just remember some things that were said, but I just, I felt the, like my comrades in a way, it was like a real palpable thing. So I felt like, oh, I'm not alone. Like other people are saying exactly the same kind of things. They're struggling with the exact same of stuff. And I was at a point very early on where I was tied in knots and I was not at peace. And I was completely doubting and denying my own experiences at the same time I was going to the meeting. Right. So I I kind of knew something had happened, but I didn't want to, I did not want to fully address it. I did not want to fully accept it. And that crumbled little by little over, you know, whatever it was, seven, eight-year process or something like that. So so those, so like I don't think it makes a difference. You know, they're not that much difference. I mean, I was there, it's it's not that much different. People were talking about the same stuff. So you get the you get the experiencers talking about stuff, and they're talking about totally mystical, magical strange things oftentimes very terrifying things too which is i th- which is still part of the the lore um and part of people's real experiences and i don't want to i don't want to shy away from those because that's that's a big part of of some people's experiences the terror and the fear and the trauma um and so so they're they're not that different you know so my the, my issue was more um, like I, in my journey, I was nervous and unsure and doubting of myself at the beginning. So enough happened at a certain point. I just crossed the line. I was then on the other side of the line and, um, you know, the tape loop in my head that had been saying, this can't happen. This can't be true, you know, ended, but that ended with a lot of things, not just support type stuff from people. It ended, I, I talking to a lot of people was, was remarkable for me that was really helpful in me. So, yeah. So the, the, it's, I don't think there was like a golden age or anything like that. Um, and a lot of those people are still around, you know, Leo Sprinkle's still around and Barbara's still, you know, doing good work and such. So, um, and they're like, yeah, so they're, they you know, a lot of the same ideas that I'm wrestling with now. Like people like Barbara Lamb have been well aware of for 20 years these mystical aspects and these kind of theatrical aspects. And, and Dr. John Mack talked about it in his book that that these events are showing up symbolically. Like the, he says it in one of his things. Um, Will Boucher got me a document that was redacted so I didn't have any names, but he says it straight up. He says, wow, this owl stuff is like, a is there's a symbolic quality to this owl stuff that's showing up. And that's like, that's the one sentence summation of, you know, a thousand pages of my work.
3: Along those lines, you brought up Yvonne Smith and Barbara Lamb and John Mack, and I know that Stuart had a friendship with John Mack and has been uh, doing some study with Yvonne recently, actually. And I wonder, I think Stuart might have a question with regard to hypnotherapy.
0: I actually have a little constellation of of hypno-questions for you, Mike, if we can turn our focus here and I'm sure others will as well. First of all, I'm just fascinated and pleased by this. I don't know if you'd call it a strategy. I suppose the reason I would use that word is that I did something similar with my mantis experiences, which is I simultaneously (laughs) used four different shamanic healers and practitioners. And I did the same thing with all four of them and just repeated it because what I wanted to find was the commonalities among each of these healers, all of them unaware I was working with the others. And I felt that that could possibly increase my confidence in certain features of what I was contending with. And I noted that you have done sessions. You've kind of done the greatest hits of hypnosis sessions. Uh, Uh, and off the top of my head, I can't remember. There was maybe one that was left out. But correct me if I'm wrong. There was there was Leo. There was there's Barbara. There's Yvonne, Bud. Um, did you ever do one with John? Was there anyone? That I was you John.
2: Won? John had passed before I. Even, okay, before I even started in this. Yeah.
0: So my question in that regard is: having had sessions with the A team of hypnosis did you find any salient features that were common among each of them? And inversely, were there distinct differences to what content or material was elicited depending on the practitioner you're working with? Right. So the Mm -hmm. question being like, what was the real deep sameness and what were the differences? That's the first question I have for you about hypno. So, so, um, uh, leo sprinkle
2: couldn't put me under like i had a film crew in the room there was people videotaping me and it was like uh like i was so strung out and so nervous i couldn't go under and i could tell it was like this thing in my mind like oh, I gotta like the film crew came all the way here for this hypnosis session i gotta please them you know and i was like i couldn't go under and i basically had to say it's not working and leo said don't worry about it and then you could tell the film crew was like threat so there was all this emotional baggage with that so uh so and then um, Barbara didn't really put me under, and I was for the same reasons. I was very, very, very nervous with Barbara. Not with Barbara herself, but at the t- at that point in my life um, during that session. And then um, Bud, I had a successful session, but not no new information came out, though I felt like I was able to see, for instance, things in my neighborhood with a clarity that I didn't expect um mary rodwell was one of the names you missed so here i'll say something which i don't think i'm going to give too much it's not like it's private or anything like that but um i went to mary rodwell in 2017 and yvonne in 2018 i write about this at length and um in mary's session a lot we jumped around through a lot of stuff we jumped around from you know things that happened in my youth to present day and then so we were kind of and i was some of it was terribly emotional and i would like like there was crying and strong emotions so but we like it wasn't it wasn't a nice linear uh, uh session you know kind of popping around a bit uh the story that emerged which is makes up like the last chapter a couple of chapters of of the hidden experience book was <clears throat> this story that i didn't quite know how to Deal with at the time in 2017. That was November of 2017. In the fall of 2018, almost exactly a year later, I went to Yvonne and I wanted to address that same thing because it was so mixed up. I will, I will say, as bet it was it was like watching a rerun. It was like watching a frame-for-frame frame rerun of the same TV show. The the mary has a different technique than yvonne the story that emerged was frame for frame the exact same movie in my mind so so one of the things that mary will do and this is um this is really contentious within the within the little world of researchers and, and stuff. There's a lot of people who are so strongly anti-hypnosis. Jeremy Vaney uh, has got a very, very strong opinion of of hypnosis. And the late Jeff Ritzman had a very strong opinion of hypnosis too. Just like thought it was basically they there, they would argue that all information gathered through hypnosis should be thrown in the trash bin. It's unreliable that's, I think that's a little strong. Uh, I feel like you should be cautious. But um, so Mary would say things like, like, oh, I would say like, oh, there's this being it's in my standing in my kitchen. Like I have no memory of this. Like she brought me to a time probably in when I was in my early forties and I came home and I walked in the house and there was this gray being standing in my kitchen. I'm like, what is this thing doing here? I have no memory of it. I cannot vouch for the reality of it. And, And I was like, I don't know what it's doing there. And Mary would go, ask it what it's doing there and i'll go what are you doing here and i kind of got a vague sort of answer that was now is the time things are going to start happening which would be about right so my early 40s was now what that was when things really started to change in my life did i create that little scenario to please the hypno hypnotherapist to please mary i can't be sure what i can say is that um that like Like having someone in hypnosis session say, well, just ask the being. Like, where, like, some people say, but if it did not happen physically in that reality, like in that moment, you can't, you're you're front loading the witness with, with like, they're going to come up with an answer that didn't truly happen. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. It's like you're chilling with this mystical realm. And anyway, you're like tapping into this. It's not like you're tapping into, the tape logs of your mind, you're tapping into your own unconscious in a way. So I guess, so I don't, I didn't have any kind of emotional reaction to Mary saying like, well, ask the being. I was like lying there on the couch, fully aware that this is like, like I went through the little mental gymnastics, like, well, how do you ask a being if it's it really happened? How could they, because they didn't answer it then, how would they answer it now when I'm lying on the couch? But a little bit of potential information came up, but I don't remember saying too much. Now, um, and Yvonne did not do that. Yvonne did not sort of say, well, ask the being. She would say, like, you know, you know, what is happening? She had a very, very, um, what I would suspect is a more classical hypnosis approach here. Okay, I think, did that cover much or?
0: It's beautiful. Yeah, that's no, very interesting. Good. And it leads to the next point I'd love to explore with you and get your reflections on, which is what I feel is, confusion around hypnosis in general. And full disclosure, I'm certified as a hypnotherapist. And the reason I got certified is to work with experiencers, which is what informs this question. The purpose and orienting drive around taking that work up is toward the healing and integration of the client. And my inspiration and goal is to work with experiencers and produce healing and better outcomes from their life, whatever their objectives are, the life they'd like to have to obtain that. So the therapeutic efficacy of hypnosis in that regard is not in much dispute. It's mysterious for sure. And you look at uh, professionals like Edith Fiore and how she came in as kind of a staunch materialist and ended up going all the way down into the woo and doing these massive removals of uh, spirit attachments to groups of people by the time she was done. And the reason for her was that it worked. She didn't really have a horse in the race around whether the cosmology of it lined up one-to-one with like, are these actual entities? Do they follow people through? She was like, if the patient has a better life and they've healed and the presenting issues are dissolved, that's success. And so the confusion that I feel sometimes in the community, when you get people who have really strong negative p- opinions around hypnosis, like this is unreliable. Well, unreliable for what? Uh, what I oftentimes discuss with people is that if hypnosis is the way we're asking questions and doing inquiry, and your question is, did I attend fifth grade? It's 100% reliable. <laughs> like we're going to find out you did attend fifth grade. If you want to know what happened on... May 7th in the third quarter of fifth grade in third period, I can't tell you with any great reliability that that information is going to be something we can consider concrete. But the two utilities, one being, can we produce healing in experiencers? The other being, can we gather reliable information? I feel like there's such separate and both understandable objectives, but I feel them getting uh, crossed the wires of them getting crossed all the time. And I'll hear someone criticize hypno and say, this is unreliable. And then my feeling is unreliable for what it's, it's incredibly effective at producing healing. Now I do also understand that experiencers often come in with the, their object objective being, I want the healing, but part of their path in wanting to get to the healing is to know just what happened on this night, on this occasion, um, around this event. And oftentimes there'll be a conscious component to the event, and then there will be more that is unearthed through the hypnosis process. But the first part of this is kind of a two-part question, because I also want to talk about that voice dialogue component where Barbara Lamb or mary rodwell is willing to have you interrogate a presence in a session and other more classical approaches would be like that voice dialogue is off the menu but the first part of the question is i would just love to get your reflection around these two aspects first using it as a way to heal the experiencer and get them a better life secondly having it have the burden of like oh, it should produce forensic evidence that we could use in a court of law, can you just speak to those two distinctions
2: um, I had a hypnosis session in the summer of two thousand and fourteen in London with a past life hypnotherapist named Lorraine flaherty, and i'll tell it quick she I met her at a conference she's she was t- gave a talk on past life hypnotherapy, and I talked to her about the UFO stuff, and I talked to her about my life, and then she basically said, "Like you would be a good candidate for a for a past life session." So I have a history of severe clinical depression; I've had it since I was twelve years old. Um, and I and I said, "Okay, well, let's go in there with the with to better understand and alleviate some of my depressive episodes." She said, "Wonderful." So I went to the session oh my God, it was, so she puts me under, she goes through the induction, and this story emerges, that I won't go into fully, I wrote about it extensively. Um, I lived this past life as this young, arrogant art student, and I I remember saying, like, I'm totally, like, arrogant, and I think I, I actually said, I think I might be gay, like, I was, like, talking about how I was dressed, and how I comb my hair, and stuff like that, and I was, like, I think I'm gay <laughs> so, so she and then all of a sudden she's like she leads me through it because a little deeper and then I'm like something's wrong with my face and she said my face actually swelled up in the session and I said I've been beaten and I'm blind and so someone had beaten me blind and then committed suicide because they felt so guilty so here I am a young arrogant artist I'm beaten blind I'm now blind I can no longer draw and then I sob, I cry, it's like purge this stuff. And it. it was like so emotional. And then, you know, she brings me out of the session. A lot more happened. A lot more took place in this past life. But, and I come out of the session and it's like, I sat up in the chair and I was like, I'm cured. Like, I know it. I know it. I'm cured. And I have not had an event of clinical depression in, what is that? S- seven years now, which I have not been able to say since I was in junior high school. So I'm like, I don't like, I benefited from, hypnotherapy like i fully had it had a the single most difficult issue in my life has been alleviated so like the therapeutic thing now have i is this should i just go ahead and tell the thing that happened when i was under hypnosis with yvonne and mary okay it's i can tell it a little quicker i can really drag it out but i can so i um same story two different hypnotherapists I have a story that um that takes up the last 20, 30 pages of the of the messenger's book, which is me seeing a large, what I call a building, a structure on a hilltop. Then I say it looks just like a flying saucer. And all this stuff happens that night. And the next morning I woke up and I was like, I'm pretty sure something happened last that night. And so and there's all kinds of things associated with that story, but the core of it is around the night of March 10th, 2013. So I said, take me back to March 10th, 2013. That was the only thing that Yvonne and I talked about that night. So I'm laying there in the sleeping bag, which I was sleeping out under the stars in that on that night. Um, and I looked up on a hilltop and I saw a round structure on a hill. And so she's asking me questions. And then all of a sudden I go, I start talking, I go, I know it's them. I know it's them. I know they're here. I know it's them." And there was a bright light behind a bush. And she says, what happens next? And I'm saying, like, I'm, I'm looking down at this big round structure. I'm looking down at it. I'm floating above it, I'm looking down at it. And I, I think I'm still in the sleeping bag. I think my physical body is still in the sleeping bag. And then Yvonne says, are you out of body? And I say, I don't know, but I but I, I think my, my body, I'm up here looking down at this thing, but my body is still in the sleeping bag. And the next thing I know, I'm walking in this hallway and I immediately recognize that I'm not tall. Like I'm six foot tall. I'm walking in this hallway and I look to my right and I look to my left and there's these little beings, gray, bald beings. And I'm the exact same height as these beings. And I look down at my body and I've got this like skinny legs and the skinny, shiny uniform on. I got these long fingers and I'm like, I'm a gray alien. I'm totally a gray alien. And she says, "What happens next?" She was not phased in the least that <laughs> I was saying this, and I was like, "I, I this feels normal. This just this this feels totally normal. I'm a gray alien. I feel totally normal. What happens next, Mike?" And The next thing I'm standing in a in a um conference room. Now I will argue this conference room seems so fake. It seemed totally fake. It had ugly carpeting. It had fluorescent light. You know, in in um, Saturday Night Live, they have little three. Wall sets. It has the back wall and the two side walls. There was no, there was that, there was no front wall to it. It looked like I was watching it on, like a crappy soap opera or something like that. And it was like, so I'm a gray alien. I'm standing in front of this folding plastic table, and then there's these beings on the other side of the table. I'm guessing like eight or twelve beings. They're all kind of fuzzed out, but I would have to say they looked like gray aliens. And I go, what am I doing here? Why, why am I here? And they say you volunteered for this. I'm like, what does that mean? I volunteered for this. And they're like, like, look, well, what am I doing here? They go, now is the time. I'm like, what now is the time, what does that mean? What am I doing here? And it went back and forth and I got stuck in this little loop. And then all of a sudden, I I like, I got so angry. I got so angry and I was like pointing my finger at these beings, and I said, you have no idea. You never told me. You never told me how sad it would be being here. You never told me how hard it would be being here. You never told me about depression and sadness and loneliness and pain. You never told me this. And they would say, you volunteered for this. And now is the time. And I was like, to hear the transcript is like, it is like, I just am like, this is so fucked up. I was like screaming at them. And I was like, you have, you did not tell me it would be like this. And the implication is that I had in one previous reality been a gray alien. I had volunteered to come to incarnate on earth in this body to play some role. And I was like, they were then Yvonne is asking me these questions, like, what do they want? And 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 like, they want me to play some fucking role. And I was livid, angry, and then all of a sudden it was like. And she's asking me these questions and I'm totally like, it felt like I was, I remember lying on the couch. Like it felt like my heart stopped, felt like I stopped breathing. I was so tense and toked so crazy with like rage. And I was like, Whew. and I just said, I think I'm back in the sleeping bag. So she said, what did they want? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. We talked a little bit and I, at that point I had already written the messengers. And the second book, the event that took place, took place on the night of March 10th, 2013. That was the night I saw the round structure on the hill. I came home from that event and I arrived at my house and I started writing the messengers the next day. So, like I've written about it and like, I am so cautious not to get locked into, did that really happen? I can say, undoubtedly, I can say without question, there was not a ugly conference room with fluorescent lights, beige walls, and ugly carpeting on board a UFO. But that's what I, that's what the vision I had. So I am treating this much more like, like if it was like a fantasy novel or something like that, If if the main hero was walking down a path and met like a wise person who told him a fable and the fable didn't ring true or something like that, but the fable stuck with him. I'm treating the story that way. Like I, I'm doing the thing, I taking several steps back. I'm not locked into did this truly happen. I'm simply saying this is the story that emerged while under hypnosis. And what I in and, and I I was front loaded. Like I've read accounts very similar to that in in John Max books and stuff like that. Um, I got totally jumpy talking about all this stuff. Um, but I'm not locked into whether it truly happened or not. Uh, but I am. I do realize the symbolic and the power of that story as a metaphorically, like when I, when I, it was like months later after the session, I was like, Oh crap. I, I started the messengers that night.
3: You know, like in the messengers, you mentioned Dolores Cannon. And of course she uh, did the healing piece with regard to like the higher self, like, Oh, can you heal their leg? Or can you, Do this, you know, that version of hypnotherapy and also asking the questions in the moment, right? And regardless of how valid or invalid one would think that asking the questions in the moment, going back and kind of redirecting linear time or something like that, by almost all accounts, it seems like she did get she did get results from the healing quotient, right? She did get healing mm-hmm. and others have as well. And so, you know, it points towards kind of like what you were talking about just now, the the like yes and quotient within this, where it's, where it's like, you know, it, it points to like maybe how much do you or you or you or any of us believe in a particular version of this and, and how that can affect the events, how much can your own past, uh, like have some kind of triggering point in this, these, and, you know, it also points towards Stuart was just uh, interviewing Ruben Langdon recently, and Ruben has this wonderful and interesting theory that, that particularly mantis beings and some, and, and sometimes Anybody, maybe anybody that's in kind of like your soul path or however you view things, however you want to frame things like this are kind of like, almost like the adjustment bureau or something like that, kind of like trying to push you gently in a certain direction, like what you're talking about with, with regard to like, um, you know, you feel you made the decision to start writing the messengers, however, there was this kind of like maybe element where somebody kind of pushed you into the deep end of the swimming pool. No?
2: Oh oh, yeah. And I'm well aware of that. I said that straight up in the writing. This feels like it's been influenced by an outside source. I said it several times in the act of writing the book, like the magical synchronicities in the creation of that book were off the charts.
3: I'm just wondering, you know, within that realm of things, within that kind of branch of, you know, the Barbara Lambs, the Dolores Cannons, that realm of of the experience with regard to, did you make a pre-incarnative decision? Did you make, you know, did you decide to be this? Have you been a gray in another lifetime? Have you been a mantis or some, you know, all these like big, wild questions that come up so frequently for experiencers and so many experiencers feel very solidly one way or the other or often they live in that land of ambiguity you know they live in the land of of being in a kind of balanced state of taking things seriously and holding them lightly as Sean bjorn hargens and others like to put it um do you do you Do you have anything at this point? Do you feel like you have any kind of like grand, grand kind of chart for the life experience in terms of like, you know, are you like a lot of experiencers? Are you kind of a a believer in reincarnation? Do you do do you like how do you think about the afterlife or before life or, you know, does time even exist, you know, in, in your kind of like grand chart of the experience?
2: Well, I mean, for me, physically, time exists, you know, Uh, and then as far as hypnotherapy, excuse me, as far as um, reincarnation, uh, yeah, I mean, I just seem so self-evident, you know, so the stuff that's strange about this work is that in doing this, I'm not just talking to UFO experiencers, like I end up talking to shamans, I end up talking to near-death experiencers, I end up talking to uh, psychics, you know, there's like, so it's not just that it's ufo experiencers it's it immediately bleeds over into all this other stuff and i and i've made an effort not to put walls up around my research i've thought if the thread led somewhere i was going to pull on that thread so um, the near-death experience shows up a lot and then reincarnation i don't really have any things that show up as reincarnation i guess people say like they'll say like oh like i feel like we met in a different life which they're saying it literally, but that's an easy thing to sort of take metaphorically, just as feeling a strong connection right away. Um, Leo Sprinkle, who I think is like 93 or something now, and by all accounts is doing great and still shows up at the office now and again with the office that he started. He started a uh, clinic in Laramie, Wyoming. He has been doing research on this stuff since the early 60s. So that's well over 50 years ago. So he has been essentially had the same questionnaire that he gave to to ufo even just people who saw saw a dot in the sky he would give them uh the same questionnaire and on that questionnaire and i'm doing this from memory and i may have this incorrectly but this is how i remember the conversation going um leo would ask in the questionnaire like do you believe in reincarnation and it is near 100 people who see ufos just seeing a ufo in the sky you would check yes to believing in reincarnation and i don't know what the the overwhelming number is uh is for the general population I, it's not 100 but his he says it is so close to 100 that he just rounds it out to 100 100 according to leo sprinkle 100 of the people who he has given the questionnaire who have had either ufo contact or seen a ufo believe in in reincarnation so that is a remarkable thing. I'm surprised no one's really run with that one, to to dig into that one more. Um, my plate is full. I would love to.
3: What's your gut sense of like this idea of these pre-incarnative decisions? I mean, Stuart Stuart has a really wonderful ex- essay that he's he's put out uh, about kind of like the idea of of breaking your pre-incarnative decisions if if that's where you want <laughs> to be right now. You know, like I don't want to be an abductee or an experiencer or contact, however you want to frame it. If you don't want to be that anymore, you should be able to say that, um, you know, the, like I, I love that idea. I, I love that essay. I think it's amazing. Um, do you have anywhere that you, do you feel like you land with regard to yourself and, and pre-incarnated decisions? Within- sure. So
2: I had that, that near uh, re, excuse me, the, I had the uh, past life hypnotherapy session and, Part of that session was um, so there was stuff that took place with my parents in a previous lifetime, and then my parents in this lifetime, and both of my parents were had passed at that point um, when I had the session. But in the in like what, if it's to be believed, what was a previous life? I had my parents showed up, if not my parents, but playing a very powerful role in my life in that previous life, and I was like and that she asked very carefully like how is that working out for you you know basically how's this working out for you like and i was like it didn't work out it was didn't work out great at all it, like something got messed up in the thing like it, it went too far like it didn't like you know we were it was basically let's like, we're going to explore creativity and vanity like vanity over creativity was kind of my issue and how's that working out for you? it's not working out well at all she's so, like well what let's what do you want like would you, would you like to rip up the contract? And I said, yes. And so she went through a formal visual thing while under hypnosis of taking the contract and ripping it up. So I, if I, and I benefited wonderfully from that session. So I, I went through a formal process while under hypnosis of visualizing, ripping up a contract I had written with my parents from this lifetime, as well as previous lifetimes. It was remarkably therapeutic. Like it didn't say like I hate my parents or anything like that. It said like basically like what we agreed to do in this lifetime didn't work. We went too far. It didn't play out the way we had hoped. Let's rip up the contract. Which I was so so I, I I have I can I can frame that in a therapeutic way. And this is something else I go back to all the time is fiction. Right, I could write this in a story. I mean, something like, you know, there's all kinds of stories that take place about people's previous lives or reincarnations and stuff like that. As a viewer watching fiction, we just go right into the flow and we follow it completely. And we don't have any problem at all, you know, doing it, in, you know, following it in fiction. In real life, you're, you know, you have this, you know, the, you're, you're much more cautious. So I'm, and as a, like, I'm totally at peace sort of hanging out in this metaphoric world, right? We're like, I mean, that's the thing where, like, I see it, like I saw an owl the other night, and I was like, whoa, what does this mean? It might mean nothing, but I was, like, I was treating it as if it might mean something. So, I was, how to say this nicely, the answer, to so the answer is yes, I fully treat it as reality, and I'll put reality in, in quotes, let's say, because I don't really know what reality is, but I, I know that I re, reaped benefits from it in and um, and it very well may be true, but I simply cannot prove it, so I won't I won't say that I know fully, I th- except I in my that, gut.
3: Let's say, yeah, I think that's a great point uh, to transition a little bit here in terms of like you know, there's there's the piece of like as you often put it, as you did recently in a in a in a podcast about Jungian archetypes, this kind of archetypal awareness of these. These touchstone events as being so much of, and this is often comes up in experiencer support groups, as in terms of like the tra- trauma into the transcendence, and kind of like the trauma or the or using anomalous experience as a paradigmatic shift for for the experiencer themselves in terms of moving forward, and like the whole chicken and the egg problem of like, is that something that's designed into it? Or is that just a part of like, you know, human or soul resilience and moving forward and things like that? Right. Um, you know, like so many experiencers they'll they'll go through, you know, if say you're an abductee and they'll, and it'll be like, oh, you know, I had a decade of sexual hangups, at, you know, after this happened, or you know, this, that, or the other thing. And yet at the same time, when this being told me that they live in a, in a zone beyond time, I completely trusted them because I was in a state of telepathic communion where I could tell that it was true. And, you know, there's this kind of yes ending that kind of keeps having to happen within this realm. Right. And I'd, I'd love to bring in Stuart with this, with, with, with this, with regard to, going back to that ripping up of the contract that agency and also the sense of like how do we live with within temporal time and how do we exist in this hypnosis space where it seems like we can freeze reverse or even change time or even change our our agency within our incarnative
0: time yes so much great stuff here and i appreciate you indulging our great curiosity around your extensive hypnosis experience. I think it's a little discussed, at least in the fashion that many of us would like to have it discussed. And you're such a rich vein in this regard. So if you can grant me a few more points of inquiry around this, one of them that I'm really fascinated about is the voice dialogue technique employed by a Barbara Lamb or a Mary Rodwell in which the experiencer is supported in interrogating, asking questions to the personhood that's present in the experience. Now, what's really fascinating about that on one hand is that there's a great history, there's a track record that's quite established with voice dialogue. Going back to, I think, all the way to Sid and... Helen Sidris Stone, is that perhaps like in the 60s, 70s and the Bay Area when that became, there was an advent of taking the perspective, taking multiple perspectives and facilitating a person climbing inside the first person subjective frame of whatever it was they were contending with. And the reason it's stuck is because it's worked. It's been a strong therapeutic modality for many people. And so on the one hand, it doesn't surprise at all that it would make an appearance in hypnotic sessions and regression sessions, because if the objective, again, is the healing of the individual, voice dialogue, and these kinds of, well, ask it, what does it think? What's its perspective? What does it say? Would you like perhaps even to crawl inside of its first-person perspective and speak as it? Those help people heal. But of course, again, on the flip side of that coin, if you're a researcher and you're trying to determine the veracity of a historical event <laughs> that sends you off into a very frustrating terrain, right? So the, the, that's the first part of the question I wanted to ask, which is what's your take on the voice dialogue, having experienced uh, therapists who have used it and have steered clear of it, both for understandable reasons, would you advocate for its continuance in sessions for other experiencers? And part two of my question is why do you suppose the experiencers belief or disbelief in the historical reality of a past life event of a contact event has no impact on the efficacy of the healing, the therapeutic part. So, which is to say hypnotherapy is as effective for people who believe or don't believe it's real, which is fascinating to me. I I think that that's one of the more um, liminal high strange assets that that therapy brings to this puzzle we're tackling here. So number one, would you advocate for the continuance of voice dialogue, those taking of perspectives, because they've they're effective in healing? Would you also perhaps say, but I also think more classical techniques should be preserved in other settings. Uh, And why does belief not impact the efficacy of hypnotherapy? And then like lastly, and then I'll be done with hypno. I promise Mike is if you had recommendations to make to hypnotherapists on how they could be better at their job, how they could better be present as supporters and healers for experiencers, what would that be? What's not on our radar that should be? Well, let me
2: answer them backwards first. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: for, so like get
2: a longer couch, like I'm six foot tall and they, they'll they say like, oh, lay down on the couch. And I'm like, my feet are hanging off the edge and stuff. So that would be one thing. Just get a longer couch. Uh, so, um, and then, uh, well, I said it before, like, like when I, so when, so Mary Rodwell is the only, per- well, I guess, yeah, Mary Rodwell was the only person that put me under that had the ability to sort of say like, you know, I'm like, I don't know why this being standing in my kitchen. Like, well, ask it ask it why it's in your kitchen. And I kind of asked it like, what are you doing in my kitchen? And and it like, I don't know if it really answered me, but I got the sense that like, now is the time it's starting now. And like that matches in my real life and stuff. I said that earlier. So like, I'm not in the job of like policing anyone. If they, If a th- hypnotherapist is finding beneficial results from these techniques, then by all means they should continue. So I would leave that totally... Up to the hypnotherapist to make those decisions and stuff like that um mary rodwell is a therapist first uh she was a, I think she was a family counselor i know she was a um, a nurse too um and then barbara lamb is a is a count is a therapist and uh yvonne is and so bud is was never a, a therapist and counselor and neither was dave jacobs was never a counselor or therapist in any meaningful and, and they were researchers so they it was interesting that those i'm sure there are others that would fall into that but those two are the ones that sort of get pointed to as the ones that have the the you know gloom and doom those aliens are up to no good kind of conclusions taking a few steps back i would say that the that the use whatever techniques you're getting benefits from. I, you know, no matter how strange they may seem, I mean, Dolores Cannon was getting like, she filled books and books and books up with her stuff. And so she was using very strange techniques to where people were kind of like telling these grand history stories of the universe itself through hypnosis. And, and yeah, so I would, I, I would encourage folks to, follow their heart in their own specific research. Uh, and then this wasn't really part of your question, but I would also say that isn't it interesting that Bud and Dave, the researchers, were getting d- different results, John Mack, who were getting uh, much more spiritually aligned or spiritually weighted uh, res- uh stuff from their from their clients than Bud and Dave were. I think Bud and Dave were just, if someone's, honestly, I think Bud and Dave, I think if people started talking about spiritual stuff, they'd just change the subject and move on and just not deal with it. I'm certain it came up in their sessions. So though it probably didn't get reported in their sessions the same way it did with Bud and Leo, excuse me, with Leo and Barbara and that kind of other side of the thing. And Yvonne, I think is in a funny place. I think she sits very comfortably in the middle And she has a very, very calm way about her. And I think she's very comfortable being in that middle ground, not weighing too much on the love and light and not getting too mired in the frightening trauma stuff. And there was one more question. Why do you suppose belief doesn't impact the efficacy of hypnotherapy? I have a perfect example of that. Like, I don't truly believe I lived this life in the 1920s in England as an art student. I don't believe it. I a thousand percent believe that I had benefit um you know i don't know what i don't know what the answer i mean i so so one of the things that's got me unsettled a little bit about the uh ufo community is there's a there are people out there who will believe anything and richard dolan speaks very strongly to this where he basically says that the new age has co-opted the UFO research, which is kind of true in some ways. But the problem is you go to a bookstore and the UFO books are on the shelf, you read one book, and it's like, wow, I believe that. And then when you pull the book out next to it, it says the totally opposite thing. And then do you believe that too? We're in a we're in a sort of minefield where we have to make up our own minds. Um, I don't know why like it. Some people think it works and some people doesn't. I all I can just speak from my own experience is that for me, I took it very seriously. The story, I took it very seriously when it was happening. I take it very seriously now. The story that emerged under past life, as well as the story that emerged of me in the conference room on the board, of the flying saucer. Like I take, I take that story very seriously. I know enough about myself that if I cling to that story and then I get some little piece of data a week for a year from now that like, it just is a, you know, contradicts something It'll make me crazy. My mind will spin in all the wrong ways and I'll get stuck. So I, for my own benefit, for my own peace of mind, I have to take a few steps back and be at peace with saying, I don't really know, but I, I'm going to pull on these threads and follow the threads regardless if I know if they're true or not. And, and um, my ultimate goal is my own peace of mind and my own solace within
0: myself. Just such a a beautiful share. And I, I guess the only lingering tendril would be around veridical instances. So children, you know, all of the work with Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker, University of Virginia, these kids recalling past lives, and then the accounts are veridical and confirmed and these kinds of verifications, having roots all the way back to Tibet, the Vajrayana Buddhist system, which function predicated on these verifications, that throws this whole wrench into, well, shit, how do we account for that if those lifetimes didn't actually occur? That's the, maybe the little lonely lingering tendril there. Oh, I fully That I would believe- love your thought on.
2: Yeah, yeah. I love those stories. I fully believe in them. They're they're those stories are like I grew up, I'm the right age to have watched um In Search of when it was on TV in the 70s with with Leonard Nimoy. I loved that show and it was just all the stuff about that show. The story, the way just that spooky music and that just those kind of stories have always f- like floated my boat and I'm and I'm immersed in research that like dovetails with that spookiness. So yes, those that proof of past life stuff. I'm the in particular the one boy who was the Navy um pilot during World War II who got shot down and died in a fire. That story is remarkable to me. And that's that's the one that just like I I buy it. I totally believe it. I believe the kid I the journey of the family, the journey of the parents, it's remarkable. So yes, so I'm fully on board. I buy the past now and then at the same time like I'm my own worst critic. I think that's human nature, right? Like I could hear someone's story. Like when I was in the throes of trying to come to terms with my own contact experiences, I would talk to people and they would tell me this story and they would say, well, I really don't know. Like, you know, I was driving at night and I had a missing time and a self saucer and I had this scar on my body afterwards, but I really don't know. And I'm like, how stupid can you be? You were abducted, you know? And, and, and I was telling the same story, but I wouldn't give, I wouldn't say that to myself. I would always leave myself out and out. That's human nature. And I, And I recognize that and enough has happened where I'm on the other side of that line now. But I do the same thing, I leave myself an out where I'm like, like, all I got is like, you know, 10 minutes or five minutes of me talking in a hypnosis session where I'm saying like, I'm in this room, like I'm in a funny conference room, it doesn't feel right. And I'm staring at these people, it's like a grand jury hearing or something like that. They're on the other side of this table. And, and why am I here? You know, so all I have is that little, I got five minutes of that. And I leave myself an out and say, if it's true, if it's true, I'm certainly acting like it's true. Like I'm acting like it's true. Like I've totally been obsessed and fully writing and fully you know, to the to the detriment of my bank account, I've changed my life to to follow this this obsession. So, if if it's not true, but I'm still acting like it's true, so I'll I'll leave it at that.
3: Thank you so much. I think I think Kristen had a question.
1: I'm going to sort of shift gears here because um, one of the things that comes up in support groups here on the experiencer group is. Um, these common denominators uh, between experiencers, and some of them have to do with family and it's very, um, and generational stuff. Um, so I'm curious, I just have a couple of kind of quick questions. Um, first of all, does do these anomalous experiences go back in uh, generations in your family do you have grandparents or great-grandparents or parents who have had these issues and then also do you have any family members who uh were in the military in space programs or in defense
2: okay so uh as far as i know there's nothing in my family lineage going back so that's so i i um yeah, so it's, as far as I can tell, there's nothing. I've talked to my brother and sister, like, you ever had any weird things? I'm like, no, like, like they, I'm completely oddball. They have, they just like, I can tell that I have a great picture of my brother and sister reading. They're like, they posed it for me a little bit, but they're sitting on two lounge chairs and they're both reading their copies of the book with the, the blue book with the owl on the cover. And they both have this expression on their face, like, <laughs> and uh, they, they, and uh, so my brother and sister are, are completely not part of this as far as any way I can know. Now my dad was in World War II in the navy that was but everyone was in World War II, yeah. you know, at that age. So I can't read too much into that. You know, he he got out right after the war and went to college on the GI bill and everything. Um I've thought about this too. My brother for a while did work doing some defense stuff. Mhm. And I followed the trajectory of his thing and he did some automotive stuff and some aerospace stuff and then went back to like sporting goods and car parts and stuff like that. So like, I can't read too much into that, you know? So, sure. um, so the answer would be, a, 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 uh, you, a, you asked a question, the answer would be yes, but I, I can't read too much into that. So sure. I thought yeah. about it and I was like, no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't play out in any kind of meaningful way. So though i've certainly talked to a lot of people who said oh yeah my father worked at some secret lab and we never knew what he did and he wasn't allowed to tell us kind of thing so
1: oh it comes up here all the time Mm -hmm. it's and it's and it's a deep um these are some deep questions because of course there's a lot of secrets uh and the secrets kind of weigh heavily on the next generations Mm -hmm. um so it's it's something that as we get deeper in these support groups, we unearth. Um, and it's just fascinating how many, how many folks have this in their background. Fascinating. Um, so thank you for that. And one other last question about your past. One other thing that comes up a lot is experiencers having had extreme fevers around the age of six and spinal taps. Did this come up for you
2: like spinal taps in real life by a real doctor yes okay no that never came up with me okay um i did have some odd psychic events in my youth that i was that scared me and i didn't want to address them and um so uh but um and the other one was um fevers no so i Did I? I mean, I certainly had some fevers and some regular sort of—I had bronchitis or something like that a few times in my youth. But I never had um, anything that I would, uh, you know, so never a strong fever. No, but I, but I recognize what you're saying. Yeah. Great. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you.
3: Would you mind? Would you mind going into those psychic events as a child?
2: I remember as a kid, like I would go to raffles and things like that, and I would always win. It scared me totally freaked me out. I would just, and I would win. And I, so I stopped doing raffles and I still don't do raffles (laughs) just like, like, Oh, it was like some funny thing that scared me. And I like, don't do play the lottery. I don't do anything. And it scared me as a little kid. And I, 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 so anyway, and then the other one was, um, I was lying in bed at night and I, my grandfather who was elderly at the time and his health was not good. And he was at our house. I must've been about eight or so. And my grandfather, my parents were going to take him to the Oh, I must've been older than eight because I was in my brother's room. So I must've been about 12. My parents were going to take him to the hospital for something. So he spent the night at our house. And I remember waking up out of a sound sleep and this whole thing played out. My grandfather's going to get up. He's going to fall. And then all hell's going to break loose upstairs. And I was sleeping in the basement in the bedroom we had in the basement, So I can hear people's footsteps above me. And sure enough, I heard thud, 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 thud. He was getting, I know exactly the room he was getting out. I could hear his footsteps. And I heard wham, I heard him fall on the floor. And then I heard my dad get up and I heard all the commotion and my mom crying and stuff like that. So my grandfather had gotten up, passed out on the way to the bathroom and, and it scared my parents and so I had the full premonition that that was going to happen. And then it played out exactly as my premonition was.
3: That's incredible. I mean, one of the things, you know, earlier we were talking about perturbations in the reality field and whether owls were maybe like angling in on those reality distortion fields as 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 in kind of an advantageous way or as like a kind of instinctual attractor. And I'm sure we all know people like this, like uh, my ex-wife, uh, my mother, my ex-mother-in-law, for example, was one of these people that everybody around her, even if she didn't say this herself, but everyone around her said like, she's got a reality distortion field. Similarly, if she walked into a casino, she could win every time. She could always get the best table at the restaurant, like every, like, it was like every door would open up around her. Right. And we, we, and I used to work in TV and there's kind of like an open secret within TV and film production where like almost everybody that's in front of the camera, you know, like some people consider those people, to be similar reality distortion field people, right? Where it's just like they kind of through sheer force of will or through whatever were able to kind of like game the, si- game the system in kind of some weird uh, reality bubble mm-hmm. defining kind of way. This kind of like paradoxical state where where it's almost as if like against all odds, this was able to kind of like coalesce in this strange way and you know it, it, maybe that's one of the things about experiencers in general that we stumble into these reality distortion fields we we through periods of stress or trauma we 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 bring them about um without knowing where they come from or or how to keep them continuing necessarily right and so there becomes this almost um, sometimes within experiences i feel i feel like Stuart has talked about this before this kind of effect of like you know there'll be periods of time where where it's like oh gosh like something hasn't something weird hasn't happened to me for a while huh okay <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to get used to that feeling of something, you know, for a while, you're, you know, for long stretches of time, you can be like, oh, my God, I haven't had a good night of sleep in 10 years. And then a period of time can happen. And it's like, well, as Stuart put it, it's like, well, you guys are going to come back, right? <laughs> yeah, or, the, you know? or the
2: synchronicities are going to come back. That
3: was that's the thing I think of. Like, if yeah. I go for a few days without a good, strong
2: synchronicity, I'm like, oh, no, like, I'm off the path, you know, so
3: there's this intrinsic or intuitive sense that you have to guide yourself back to the path maybe. And then maybe they start happening again. You know, I felt like that happened for me for a while, like in my late twenties and early thirties where I was like trying to pointedly not be an experiencer, you know, as if that was something that you could do. I was like, okay, I'm going to shut it down. I'm not going to pay attention to this. I'm not going to allow for it. And and it felt like, in some ways, like like some like roadrunner, wily e. coyote cartoon where all of a sudden it was like I was getting like pounded with a dunce hat from like the reality gods, where it was just like, look, dummy, like you're du- you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you dummy. You know? And like, have you ever gone through a period like that where where you were where you tried to kind of like shut down this whole realm
2: like it feels like i've lived many years of my life without the experience or thing like i don't feel like i had that much stuff going on in my youth very minimal stuff and i feel like starting around 2006 it just went crazy and it and i wasn't ready for it like i've said many times like trying to deal with it and it was mostly what was happening was powerful synchronicities that felt orchestrated like I was, so that started in around 2006 and I was 44 years old. And so that was, that was a big starting point for me.
3: There's been this big, huge publicity media circus, uh, with regard to ufology and anomalous, anomalous encounters within the last month or so, kind of starting with a piece that fellow experiencer group member, Leslie Kane and, uh, Gideon Lewis Krauss, I believe is his name, um, uh, published in the New Yorker on April 29th Mm -hmm. of this year. And then the next day, there's an hour long piece on National Public Radio that was kind of like a big uh, new thing for NPR to start covering. And, you know, over the course of this last month, it's 60 minutes, like all these news, all these news media organizations that have kind of haven't touched this with a 10-foot pole, at least for the last decade or so, are kind of coming back to it with new eyes. And it seems like it's really, for a lot of experiencers, it seems like it's this kind of growing siren call where it's getting a little louder or a lot louder each week, where it's like, oh my gosh, like, is this really happening? Are we going to meet in some you know, are we going to meet in the middle somewhere, you know, do we get to kind of like walk forward in the field towards consensus reality and they're walking towards us in the field, too? Um, how do you feel about that? And do you have any like and you've been around the block with this issue for a while now? Do you, do you feel like you have any um, advice for experiencers out there today in terms of how to kind of navigate this this space? this space of consensus reality versus versus the experiencer or consensus reality and the experiencer? So, um, you know,
2: as I said before, like, I don't care if I could like think, Like I've already had my disclosure. Like I don't need someone else to tell me that this, I don't need someone on a podium to tell me this is like really happening. I've already had that and come to the terms myself. Um, Leslie Keen was on a few weeks ago and she spoke about the fact that she was like, yeah, and I've heard all these weird stories. I've heard all these weird stories. I'm a reporter. All I can do is report like the facts. I I have to have conclusive facts. That's what I'm stuck with. And you can see that had framed her, you know, the way she presents her information, even though I'm certain if she was hanging out with Bud Hopkins and she's, she's heard the weirdest of the weird stories and has to be open to this parallel world kind of thing. So um, i talked to Richard Dolan one time, and I think this is on a recorded interview that I did maybe a decade ago. Uh, and and I said, you know, he was, I think it was after his book AD came out, After Disclosure. And I said, you know, Rich, like what happens when the guy in the podium at the White House, you know, says, oh, UFOs are a reality. And we've like, you know, we have data we consider reliable that has come from the you know let's say the navy or the air force and and we we're now saying that the ufo phenomena is a reality and what if the first person in the press conference like says what's up with all those people who talk about being taken from their bed at night you know any he, any enrich he, and said yes yes that's exactly right that's the problem isn't it yeah so i think there's like are the powers that be steering The subject away from the abductees in order that it's in this nice safe you know is this a military threat which you know like i you would have every right to have a special you know button on the telephone when the flying saucer goes over you know there's like to call the other air force execs and stuff like that or the air force brass uh so or is it or is it that the the entirety of the journalistic field the mainstream journalistic field is is filled with people like leslie keen who say all i can do is stick with the facts all i can do is like have concrete facts and then work the story that way so once this person you know you have someone says well golly there's all this stuff with owls and reiki and psychics and stuff like that they're like oh that's all well and good but how do we how do we quantify that in facts you can you know like i'm so that so i'm uninterested in the big picture as it's playing out because I'm my plate is full with this with the stuff that I love and I'm drawn to that these the, the 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 my email inbox is filled every morning with the kinds of stories that I want and desire from a very subjective headspace like I want the weird ones I want the ones that are all about psychic experience I want to grab that thread and pull on it and see where it leads and see what else it's connected to and and um and i'm not really interested in the i mean the videotapes of some little dot flying around and it's, it's pretty boring the stuff that the that the navy's released when you for me in my eyes
3: you know i try to take a non-judgmental approach myself but for me you know it's it, this whole publicity and media spectacle with regard to ufology, the phenomena, this UAP task force report, whatever else <laughs> comes about with it, Lulu Elzondo, all this. It, it's more about like how does it impact the experiencers? It's more about how, like, how does it open up conversations for us in terms of like our our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our our family, our lovers, our, you know, anybody around us, like how does it impact these situations where these long-held secrets or something like that can, can maybe open up conversations or open a, up a, a space of thoughtful open-mindedness mm-hmm. in a new way, possibly. You know you and Stuart did a great job without without kind of going into a huge amount of detail um i i feel like i can say this since you're both on the call and this is and it was directly in relation to me you both were talking about like how do you deal with coming out as an experiencer right like and you and Stuart both were talking like you were talking and it felt like and to me like it felt very resonant and very pertinent to my experience in you saying like, I haven't had like the, the world only got better for you or your experience within day-to-day life only got better for you when you came out as an experiencer yourself. Um, I remember, I remember something, something along those lines. I don't mean to mischaracterize you mm-hmm. at all, but it did seem like there was something there and Could you speak about that a little bit like more towards like experiencers in general, like a lot of people like have a lot of fearfulness, like going into a situation where they're going to open up these conversations. But it seems like we're in this like really advantageous space right now, you know, um, Mm -hmm. like, like navigating that for you, um, like how has the world gotten better for you as you've, as you've been able to talk about this? as you've been able to talk about anomalous experience.
2: So a couple So, so that night of um, March 10th, 2013 with the round structure on the hill and the, that story, which I had in 2014, I didn't explore it for another three years in 2017 through hypnosis, I didn't explore it. I explored it as much as I could, every conceivable way by digging and pulling on threads. But that night and all the synchronistic stuff that surrounded that, was my confirmation event. So what happened was I had lived my life since about 2006 with this churning tape loop in my head, just saying, is is this real? This could this really be happening? Is this can't be happening? It's not real. Could this be happening? Is it real? Is it happening to me? Can't be happening. It's not happening. Could this be happening? That was stuck. That was this tape loop was unending, churning away 24 hours a day, always, always, always after, like there was a point a few days after that event in southern utah in 2013 where it was just like i just was like huh! it's real it really happened i'd sort of come to that term in i'd come to terms with it but when that happened all of a sudden just the click i had a much clearer mind because the the ever present is this true could it be happening did this really happen could this happen was gone and it was like this is real it happened you know then the, the next thing is now suck it up you know you got to deal with it. And I was like, okay, well that's it's easier like the the tape loop was worse than the than actually dealing with it. The denial was worse than actually dealing with it. And I know so I was in a totally fortunate thing to do this. I was drawing cartoons for a living, right? So I was like totally like already a, the weird kid in junior high school was like the person I like continued to be throughout my career. Um I was teaching people to go camping in the woods. That I feel like I backed out of that a little bit because, you know, parents and things like that, Google and parents and, and things like that. I I felt like it was correct for me not to be involved in the school in the same way I was. So I started the blog. I started my blog only talking about synchronicities. Like I had a lot of them. I kind of wrote a little thing about synchronicities within the first month under absolutely like, I'm going to say like magical means the world was like, uh, uh, Your blog is going to be about UFOs, whether you want it to be or not, you are stuck with this. And so I had already started a blog, which, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go with this. Like, so I spent, I processed publicly online, my doubts, my fears, my worries, my coming to terms with it, my synchronicities, my UFO experiences. Like I talked about these things in real time and, and people were really, really amazingly supportive. So. So I was like, I wasn't the president of the bank. Like I didn't have kids and a family and a mortgage and stuff like that. I was this, I lived in a hippie groovy town out West where I was, you know, a ski bum all winter and a, and a climbing bum all summer. And I did illustrations, cartoons the rest of the time. So I was already in this, I was in, I was the perfect person to, to say, fuck it. I'm going to go ahead and speak my truth where I think many people for lots of very good reasons might have a hard time doing that. So, and I, and I, and I, when people say, I need to use a pseudonym, I say, absolutely, I won't publish your name. I understand what that means to want to remain anonymous. So um, what I can say is that coming forward for me has produced zero big waves, you know, like nobody has said anything to my face. I've read a couple of things online I've, don't, I suspect there's some friends that are talking about me behind my back, kind of rolling their eyes about, but nobody has said anything in my face. And there's been no overwhelming backlash. Um, So, and then also I've tried to make a, like, I fully threw myself into the books, like full time, which was, you know, like, I could have made better financial decisions than doing that. But it was, it's been rewarding in ways that are remarkable. So just the people I've been in touch with and the the friends I've made some friends have fallen away which is normal of anything You change your job you change you stop playing tennis and you start you know jogging you're going to lose a few tennis player friends and you know get a few jogger friends uh, in the in that transference or in that transition and so I've been I've been um saddened by the loss of a few friends and I've been so joyful about the new friends I've acquired